Welcome to the Curiosity Key Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Wyman, and I'm a B2B marketing strategist, LinkedIn specialist, and curious thinking advocate. I believe curiosity is one of our biggest assets. If you want your marketing to be more effective and feel less like a chore, be curious about who you're targeting, how you can help them, and what you can learn from them. This podcast aims to share stories from people who are keen to solve problems and change the way we do things by innovating and turning their ideas into reality. This week, I interview Lee Robertson, who's the founder of Octo Members Group, and we talk about the benefits of licensing technology to help you grow your business instead of going down the route of developing it yourself, as well as why marketing is such a key part of business, yet something that's made unnecessarily overcomplicated. It's quite uncommon for me to come across an ex-military man and somebody in the financial services sector that loves marketing and wants to talk about it so openly. So this really is a great interview. Lee is a self-taught marketer like me and he's developed his skills through experience over the years and really focusing in on that end customer. There's so much you can learn and take away from this episode. So be sure to take notes or check out the show notes on my website. Just go to charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. So let's dive in, shall we? Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Curiosity Key podcast. And I'm joined with Lee Robertson. Welcome, Lee. Thank you so much for joining me. That pleasure. Good morning. Thank you. So do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and, and your business and what, what you're up to? Yeah, sure. Um, I am the chief exec of Octo Members Group, which is a private social network um, based on the Mighty Networks platform for predominantly, but not exclusively, UK financial services professionals. I'm a 30-year veteran of financial services. I, I owned and operated a wealth management business until I sold it in 2018, but couldn't quite give up the fix of financial services. So now I run a community which is 2,000 strong across wealth management, investment management, marketing, compliance, that kind of stuff. Brilliant. And we met because I'm also using the Mighty Networks platform. And uh, when I was doing some research, I came across your membership and your community and you very kindly jumped on a call with me and uh, sort of talked about your experience and your learning. And I thought it would be great to bring you on the podcast to talk about like, why you decided to um, create a community in the first place and also the fact that you're leveraging technology in order to bring people together and deliver value um, and also the fact that you decided to license the technology instead of develop and build your own so there's a few questions in there <laughs> uh, I guess first of all is that you know why why did you decide to go and start a community what was your reasons for that well I mean like anything the, 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 there's lots of reasons I mean the, the predominant reason was within financial services our regulator we, lots of us used to meet socially and there was there was a feeling that the tab was being picked up by larger firms, inviting smaller firms out in the hope they would do business together. But that sounds, when you say it like that, it sounds a bit corrupt. But actually, it was far less than that. It, it was part of that whole social interaction of businesses doing business with each other. But the regulator felt that there was too much of it going on. And there had been some abuses, because in any system, there are people who will abuse the system. So they clamped down on lots of that um, hospitality side. And we felt, uh, myself and the co-founders felt, that this might mean that people were getting together less, would see each other less often. So wouldn't it be a good way, good way if we could still meet each other digitally? So, and also, there was a, there's a whole new generation of people coming through in financial services who hadn't really been exposed to that system anyway. Uh, they were much more desk-based. Um, and, and I make no claims for no understanding millennials or, or, or next generation or whatever. But but they're less bothered about seeing sort of balding 50-year-old blokes over a beer to talk business. They'd rather just do it at the desk. So we thought this might be a nice way to do it. Um, why did we license um, t existing technology? Um, well, I'm Scottish and don't like spending money, I think. So it, it was either spend hundreds of thousands of pounds building our own. And it was a, it was a consideration for us that we might do um, because there is a viewpoint that if you own your own technology, sooner or later you become more valuable down the road. But we didn't set it up to, to make it valuable. We set it up as a service. Um, so we knew that Mighty Networks, after a lot of exploring of other things like Extranets, Ning, and, and loads of others that are out there, Igloo, et cetera, et cetera, um, we looked at Facebook business pages, we looked at LinkedIn, um, 
the reason we didn't go Facebook or one of the big reason we didn't go Facebook is we were really, really keen about data and privacy. And the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal broke with Facebook. And the, the guy just seems mendacious. I mean, we're all sort of on Facebook, aren't we? But, but we, don't like be, we don't like it. We, we know that underlying it, it's not a very nice company. It, it's scraping our data, et cetera. LinkedIn, sadly, just nowadays seems full of self-promoters and photocopy ads and, and people getting passively aggressive saying, you haven't replied to my invite to connect and that kind of stuff. So we <laughs> thought, let's have a private social network. Let's not spend the money. Let's license proven technology. And, and to, to be fair, we didn't just take, we just didn't take it lying down either. I mean, we, fl- we flew out to San Francisco. We met Gina. Uh, we spent time with the team. We met the chief technology officer. And we, we feel that we helped bring it forward in some ways because some of the stuff we wanted wasn't available when I took it, but it is now. So we, we, we hope we've influenced their roadmap a bit. And for that, I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not claiming all the credit, that's for sure. But but I think, you know, we have a monthly call with them and, and um, we're forever, you know, they've been really good to us, I have to say. I mean, we keep asking for things that aren't there. We get them, you know, sooner or later. Now, we're not the only people asking for them, I know, but um, we have a very good relationship with them. And the thing that we find with Mighty Networks is that they are incredibly willing to explore what you want. We wanted much deeper, more granular management information because of our business model. Um, We had some as part of the standard package, but what's available now is much more than what we started. We feel quite responsible for getting that from members in, in, in our own small way. Fantastic. And, you know, my experience with Mighty Network so far has been absolutely brilliant. And, you know, I did my own research to have a look at, you know, what platform to use. And, you know, the call with you helped a huge amount just to, um, you know, just to get people's experience of, of actually using it. Because again, like you said, I think for me, I didn't want to use Facebook because I find it too distracting. And I find that, there, are, you know, every man and his dog has got a free Facebook group these days. I didn't want to um, offer a free group because I know that mine's paid and yours is is free. But um, the, there's a lot of noise and a lot of distractions on Facebook. And I think I wanted somewhere that um, people will go with the intent of learning, of being part of a community in the same way that you would go to an event or a trade show or a conference or a, a networking meeting. You would be intentional about spending your time there and you would make it count. You wouldn't be distracted with you know friends and family and cat videos and all sorts of other things like that. Um, and like years and years ago, I did actually use LinkedIn groups to bring together networks, um, you know, so partner networks and agents and distributors and that worked well, but LinkedIn groups just, you know, they're, they're not quite there yet. They are still great. Don't get me wrong. Um, but they're not quite, you know, what both of us want to help us grow our business anyway. Yeah. Well, we, we wanted, the other thing we wanted is we wanted an ad free experience for for our members and and i take i absolutely i agree with you about the distractions on facebook etc even if you overcome the privacy issues which we just couldn't um you know we, we you know you look at something on google because you you want to buy a power washer because you're working from home and you want to do your patio flags for the next 10 weeks facebook's serving you up ads of carts or power washers. I mean, you know, you've already bought one. It drives you nuts. So we didn't want that, uh, particularly in financial services where we, you know, fun groups and, and bigger players are for always, always, always trying to push their, their stuff onto the smaller players. So we wanted an ad-free experience, no pop-ups, no memes, no fake names, uh, no bad behavior. And we thought we could do that within this private social network experience as opposed to an open, even if it's a closed group on an open social um, social media. Brilliant. And how how have you used your community to fuel the business? Like, what what are you using the community for? Yeah, I mean, it, we see it. We see it massive. Ideally, as, as just a great big knowledge exchange. Um, you know, there are. You know, we talk about crowdsourcing knowledge. We we aggregate and curate other people's content, and we create our own. So we have wealth managers explaining how they do things, you know, how they interact with their clients. We have marketing people talking about how, and there's lots of it at the moment because of this whole coronavirus thing, we're all working from home, you know, doing this. Um, We have compliance people helping people stay on the right track in terms of compliance. There's all sorts of, we have fun groups talking about what they're doing because of the crisis. 
and people can talk about it and they can they can ask questions of each other they can interact privately because of the private messaging system in there so in effect we wanted to crowdsource the best knowledge we could find we wanted a kind of steady stream a feed a wall whatever you want to call it of posts that were actionable contextual debatable where people learned with the eventual outcome that they became better at what they did um and to, to fuel that we wanted to do lots of videos and podcasts so we we co-located in a shared workspace at a studio complex in london where we're based and we have in the 12 months since we went fully live we've done approaching 500 videos most of them interviews with with players in our sector that we can ask them the questions that, that other people would like to ask them that's fantastic and i love the fact that you are prioritizing and delivering unique and highly valuable content what would you say to somebody that doesn't see the value of um using content as a marketing tool <clears throat> then you need to think again is the short answer um now I'll qualify that because you get me onto my book there here. I love marketing. I love content. I create it. I aggregate it. I curate it. I'm always thinking about the next thing. So, so just rein me back if I go too far. But um, someone said, I think it was Bill Gates. Someone said content is king. Yeah, fine. But good content is, is, is the power behind the throne. You know, it, you know there's, there's, there's the eminence grease of content is absolutely good content. There's something about there's more content being published in the last decade than being published in the whole of mankind's history or something until that point. I, I probably misquoted that, but you get my point. So content, in my view, has to be actionable. It has to be contextual. It has to further your knowledge. It has to be interesting. It has to be engaging. I don't care, it, using my sector as, as, a, as an example, I don't care that Bill, the fund manager, has left the blue fund group to join the red fund group. I just don't care. What I do care about is Bill's view on the current crisis, on what he thinks the tectonic shifts are going to be because of this situation. Are we all going to work from home more often? Are office spaces going to be depleted? Are landlords ever going to be filling these ground floors um, in their buildings anymore with restaurants and bars and things? Because will we be allowed to gather socially? Now, that's just a very, you know, of the moment kind of answer. But that's what I'm interested in. The thought process. How, how does he envisage the world going forward? How will he invest ordinary investors' money? I don't care that he's left blue to go to red. That just means nothing to anyone. So going back to content, if it's not original, and it's hard to be original, I get that. The only way to be original is to tell a story, to tell your story, to tell the story of what you're doing, what you're thinking, what you might do. That's good content because people learn from that. Just to parrot another listicle of seven things you should do to have a healthier lifestyle, starting with get up at 5 a.m., it's been done a million times already. It means nothing to anyone. It's got to be original, thought-provoking. It's, it's got to chime with your audience particularly. And then so that's why you've got to understand who your audience is. So I've already started waffling, but you, you take my point. Content for me is everything. Content, and I don't like the phrase, but it's like anything, holistic content. It's always hard to find a phrase that does it better. But content is just useful knowledge that you can deploy into your business to help your eventual client. And I love that. And just to add on to that, what you were saying about content being king, because I heard a quote and I forget who gave it. Um, so apologies for that. But they were saying content is king, engagement is queen, and then the queen runs the house. <laughs> yeah. Do you know, I almost went there. And then I always think as a man in these current times, I shouldn't be relegating women or putting women ahead. <laughs> I'm being very gender neutral there, but that's why I use the phrase eminence grease. <laughs> Uh, I think sometimes we're taking the, uh, we could go down a very big rabbit hole here because I think we're taking uh, a lot of things a bit too far um, to a point. Um, but for the purpose of the content thing, I think it's just the case that, you know, content has always been talked about being king, I think, for, for a very long time in the, the history of marketing. Whereas I think now, you know, a lot of people, especially on social media platforms, and I mean, you know, I specialize on LinkedIn and everybody sees it as a bit of a broadcasting platform they just want to get everybody to go and see their content so 
I think there's a big misunderstanding in that, right, okay, once I've created my content, the hard work is done. People are just automatically going to want to read it or consume it or watch it or listen to it or what have you. Whereas you do need to get people to come to your content. You also need to put your content in front of other people, but not by just broadcasting it and telling people that they should come and see it. You need to bring them into the conversation and engage with them. And it's that engagement that keeps that content alive. Um, And exactly what you're saying about the community is that, you know, you're putting your content in your community for the purpose of them to engage with it. Yeah, and and some of it's more successful than others, and some of it, and and you know we we have um, it's probably worth explaining the structure. You know, we're financial services. Um, we're a very very small team. Um, I sort of oversee content because of my passion for marketing and, and and all things that way. But we have a head of investment content, Gary, um, and he sometimes he he will put things on. I think oh, just that's a bit near, and it gets masses of engagement. And sometimes I will spend a whole day writing an article that I think I've imparted so much knowledge here and it goes nowhere. And it just depends on the day, I think. And it depends on how your audience are feeling, what they're worried about at that particular moment. Um, I mean, one of our best performing articles was by Gary. And, and I, I almost asked him to take it down because it was, you know, is the day of the, the suit and tie over in the office? And I thought... How does this add to the sum of human knowledge, really? Um, anyway, it, it went nuts and everybody had a view and the traditionalists were there and, and the, the funkies were there. And, and, and I thought, we are a community. It's not all about learning all the time. You've got to be able to have these open, sort of lighter questions. And everybody got engaged with it. And, and I learned a, a salutary lesson that day is don't judge content before you see what the engagement looks like. Yeah, it's and it's really important to job. test test ideas, test topics, test subjects. I think that's the beauty of human behavior is, you know, there's a lot of algorithms and AI out there, you know, that's saying that, right, okay, we can replicate humans, we can, you know, predict what they're going to do. And I think you can do to a certain point, but one of the beautiful things about humans is that we are slightly unpredictable and our behaviors can change depending on what's going on, Uh, especially in the current climate, you know, we're talking about, you know, the coronavirus and what's going on. I think it's, really um interesting how people are behaving and how people's behaviors have changed so much with the current situation uh you know especially we're all going to remember how people dealt with this situation leaders employees people are watching how we're behaving and what we're doing well we're seeing that right now and we sort of big names are um I'm not, although I'm on it, I'm not a massive fan of Twitter. I think the behavior on there is really quite appalling sometimes. But but we can see at the moment, you're quite right, that there are big names with good, trusted personal brands. And that may be a discussion for another day, this personal brand thing, but it, it forms part of content marketing. But good, well-respected names who are popular on TV are being hammered because of the way they're treating their staff or um, the way they've, they've queued up to get money when they're already millionaires themselves and all that kind of stuff. So I think you're right. From, from, the, from the highest end to the, to, the, to, the, to the most functionary of us doing what we do day to day, we are being watched, particularly on social media where everyone is open. You know? And I've had quite a lot of discussions with uh, directors in companies who are having to make some really, really tough decisions. Um, you know, some of them are having to make redundancies and people are going up and down the redundancy list because of how they're behaving through this. Some members of staff are really stepping up, really, you know, being positive and taking opportunities and being present, learning and making the most out of the situation. Whereas other people who previously would have been considered a star in the company or, you know, one of their key players have completely gone the opposite way. Yeah. And the thing, you know, it's like employers in the same way are looking at their staff and thinking, right, okay, well, you know, your behavior is a good way to demonstrate your values. And also, you know, do you want those type of people in your company moving forward? Because things will change. Yeah, and there's, there's a really, I, I, I'm ex-armed forces. So, you know, I'm, I'm a sucker for, for anything like that. Um, but, but I, you know, I, I believe in meritocracy of effort. And the armed forces, despite the fact it's quite a hierarchical organization, it, it does reward effort in, in whatever you do. So, but I'm still a sucker for things. And one of the things I love watching is this SES, Who Dares Wins. Um, you know, it, it's entertainment. But, you know, and there's, there's a current series on at the moment, um, which is the celebrity one. And I just watched the last episode. And, and this is, the, the point is people behave differently under stress. Some people 
rise to the occasion and others who you think would rise to the occasion or would stay at this high performing level they have, once you put them under stress, they react in totally different ways. And there's a great episode last week where they took two of the fittest, most focused individuals and put them together into a team under stress. And they, they dropped to the bottom of the pack because they couldn't work together. They were both um, sort of high performers, but you put two high, high performers together. And this is a great thing about building teams, isn't it? That, that it's not always, you can't have all the same people, all the same type in a team. And it was just salutary. And it just, I think it just illustrates your point that when you put people under stress, as, as we've got at the moment, whether it feels like stress to some or not to others, it is a stressful situation. You know, people are dying. We're locked at home. Um, you know, we're, li- we're living on 20 visits to the fridge a day to see if, if anything's changed since the last time we looked in there, you know, uh, or we have that wrestling with, should I have that bit of cheese that's left or shouldn't I? All that stuff. People behave differently under stress. And I think um, that's really, really important at the moment for cl- because clients, our customers, our clients are feeling those stresses at the moment. Some are performing well with us and some aren't. You know, we, for instance, we have invoices out that haven't been paid. And you think, well, is that just because they're working remotely? It's not quite as efficient. Um, or is it just the fact that they're going to stiff us over because they're worried about their own income? You know, it's, there's all sorts of things you build into this. But I think at the end of the day, as marketers, which we all are in some in one way or another, every business person is a marketing person. Um, it's important that we keep talking to our clients, keep talking to our customers. So I'm for financial services. We always talk clients rather than customers. But, but we talk to our customers in a grown-up way that's empathetic with the situation they find themselves in because we don't know what their home situation is. We don't know what their work situation is. We don't know if, they, if they're worried about their job, if they're worried about their income, et cetera. Oh, 100% empathy has never been as important, you know, with what's going on. I think a lot of people are so quick to judge, you know. Um, I had um, a demo arranged. It had been arranged for months and um, the guy just didn't show up to the meeting. Somebody else had arranged this uh, meeting and she sent me a message afterwards saying, oh, how did it go? You know, it was all good. I said, oh, no, he didn't show up. So she was just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that that happened. So went on to the defensive mode, sort of saying, oh, I'll, I'll follow up with him, find out why. And I was like, wait, hang on a minute. He's in New York. This was when everything was going completely mental in New York. I was just like, I hope he's okay. And I'm just going to give him the benefit of the doubt and just hope that everything's fine. As it turns out, this poor guy had coronavirus and was on lockdown and was too poorly to do anything with it. So it was very apologetic. And I was like, look, it really doesn't matter. Like really just focus on your health. We'll, we'll rearrange, we'll get it sorted. But it was interesting to see the difference. Like I, my first thought was he's in New York. Something else might have happened here. Whereas her first thought was, I can't believe he's just cancelled. How rude. <laughs> you know, I, tell you. Yeah. I think, so, you know, take a step back and understand the situation that somebody else is in. But then also, you know, from our own individual point of view you know take ownership of what's going on and and behave in the best way possible Um, sorry i just want to touch on a a couple of points that you were saying because there were quite a few things that you you talked about but the first one was so you work in financial services you're ex-military and you love marketing so these are the i never i never hear this situation (laughs) Uh, and and lay overlay that with the fact that i'm actually an introvert so okay okay so, so, so tell me more why what got you into marketing why do you love marketing i i get it's a mix well i fell into financial service by accident when i left the armed forces i was actually going to join the civil service but it was one of those um periods when they were kept promising a start date and because of budget constraints that we kept getting put back but you've got to live you know you've got to you've got to earn so way back because I'm much older than you are, way back in the um early 90s was it early 90s yeah early 90s um Financial services had a very low barrier to entry, um, you know, direct sales. And, you know, um, I knew no better, so I just started. And, and it turned out, despite being a, uh, an introvert, I was okay at it and sort of began to earn. And then I thought, you know, this is all right. I quite enjoy this. So I stayed. Um, and then I went through that usual thing back then. Of, of I worked for a, a direct sales insurance company and then realized, could do better than this. Then I worked for a building society group as a mortgage broker and thought, well, I can do better than this. And then I went to a bank group and worked as a financial advisor there and I thought, well, I can do better than this. And I started my own company back in um, 95 with the guy who had been my manager. So the, the internal joke at the bank was I was actually his manager. He just didn't realize it. Um, but <laughs> um, 
But we started the business together. It lasted five years. I, by that time, I'd sort of worked out what I wanted to do, which was have my own firm, fee-based, not commission-based, etc. So I was a very, very early adopter of the fee-based model, which, which is the prevalent model today by law. So... Starting your own business is pretty scary, um, and you know, I, you know, any, anyone that's listening or watching this will, will know that. I'm telling them nothing they do not know. The the bills turn up with monotonous regularity. The income doesn't turn up with monotonous regularity, and they rarely turn up at the same time. So there's a lot of juggling goes on. So why did I get involved in marketing? I didn't really see it as marketing. It was telling my brand story, what made me different. And what I realized working in the bank for five years was if I set up a business doing pretty much the opposite of what the bank told me to do, I'd probably make a decent job of it. Because the bank was all about high pressure selling. It was about you know product. It was about um, not getting too close to the bank's customers in case you tried to nick them later on. There was also, whereas financial service is all about trust and relationship. So I set, I set up a, my first business on that basis. And then the second one that I started in 2000, when we went fee-based, because my old business partner wanted to stay commission-based and he's no longer in the industry. I thought, how do we get our message out there? It was just telling the brand story. And I started by telling the story, jokingly, that, that I'd based the business. And I think all marketing comes back to your story. And my story back then was, well, I'm just doing basically everything the bank um, taught me to do, but the exact opposite of it. And it was a kind of funny story. It was a funny lead-in, or it was funny to me. People laughed politely, but it seemed to chime with people. You know, I said, this is about the long term. This is about getting to know you first. It's about talking about your goals, your ambitions. What do you want the money for? Not about... What do you want today? Because I've got a, I've got a briefcase full of application forms, and and it just chimed with people. And by the time I sold the business in 2018, um, so it was an 18 year old business by the time I sold that to the rest of the team to found Octo. Um, we'd won 57 major national awards. I'd won two international awards. I'd been on TV about 40 times. And it's not to brag. It's about why is marketing important. It's about telling your story. Uh, and the more you tell the story, the better you get at it, and the more you can nuance it, and the more you can feed in the experience of your business going forwards. So for me, marketing is just storytelling. That's all it is. Telling the story of your brand or telling your own personal story, hopefully chiming. That sounds like it's all broadcast. It's not. You can only tell that story in the context of having listened to your customer. That's a great piece of advice because I speak to so many people who, where marketing isn't their primary focus, it's not their area of expertise. And I think I, I can empathize with a lot of that because I studied engineering. I didn't study marketing. I have I kind of studied marketing by learning on the job and just by doing it. And I've learned to love it that way, but I certainly didn't love it to start with because it was just something that stopped me doing the real work. <laughs> uh, and I guess, like, what, what advice would you give to somebody else that thinks in that way? Because I think I, you know, I'm preaching about that all of the time, you know, trying to help people understand how to simplify the marketing process, mm. because a lot of people overcomplicate it. A lot of marketers overcomplicate it. Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, if you, <laughs> if you go online, we all do now, don't we? So we go online to learn, and we're on YouTube, and we're on Google, and we're on this, and we're on that. Um, and suddenly you're confronted by SEO, pay-per-click, um, long tailwind, all, all this tailwords and, and keywords and, and all this stuff, and it just baffles all of us. And, and for me, because I'm like you, I'm self-taught, I think it's all about crafting your story and your business brand and your personal brand to resonate with your customer, having first taken the time to understand what your customer looks like. And just almost take the word out, marketing out, you know, and there's all sorts of, you know, there's, there's online advertising, there's or, or online marketing, guerrilla marketing, um, uh, experiential marketing, all this stuff. Who cares? How do you get your message of how good you are and how much you want to help your customer in front of your customer? And that's it for me. Just take the complication away and think about it in those bare naked terms. I'm a simple guy. You know, I, I've done no marketing qualifications. In fact, the, the one bit was I did an online degree a few years back almost to keep my mother quiet because I was meant to do it, but I joined the forces instead. So I then did an online degree so I could actually turn up at Christmas and not be reminded annually that I hadn't gone to university. And I was the first one that should have done because we were a working class family. So, And there was one module in marketing and I learned absolutely nothing in it. I just thought this is just 
rubbish. It would not work. This is such an academic piece of nonsense. It wouldn't work in my business. I couldn't see it working in any other business. And I'm, I'm sure my lecturer would, would disagree with me, but you know, it, he's in academia and I'm in business. So it's about how do you take the elements of your business, the people in your business, how do you showcase them? How do you showcase your knowledge? How do you showcase how you've helped other customers like that customer you're trying to convince? Those are the things you do. And there's so many ways of doing it, you know, from from customer testimonials, that's marketing. From content marketing, that's marketing. From um, events, that's marketing. From uh, little drinks parties, that's marketing. There, there are thousands of things you can do. And I think you just have to focus in on how do I help that person? Because if you don't want to help people, don't be in business. Exactly. And also look at the simplest way of doing meeting your end goal as well because with with market like you just said that there's so many different ways you can market so it's very easy to think oh I should be doing this and I should be doing more and I should be spending more time on this but you know sometimes just one method of marketing can help you grow your business it can survive and thrive and you don't necessarily need to do everything else you know there's a lot of businesses that survive very well off referrals but if you do survive off referrals, you need to have a process in place to make sure that they keep coming in. <laughs> Otherwise, you yeah. know, you're just operating on hope, which is never, never a very good strategy anyway. No, I mean, my first exposure to marketing, although I didn't know it was marketing, but it is, was that when I left the armed forces, decided I needed a job because the civil service were mucking around, was uh, I did two weeks training down in Swindon for an insurance company. Then I was located in London where I lived and was given a telephone in the yellow pages. Cold calling. It's marketing. It's horrible. It's brutal. It's um, demoralizing until you get somebody who says, yeah, okay, I will see you. Um, but it's, that's the most basic of marketing. Every time you do anything that goes external, it's marketing. If you do a tweet on behalf of your company, but bear in mind, you're most probably the people on this, this podcast or, or video cast will be running smallish businesses. So it's hard to separate yourself from your business because there's a kind of merging of the two. So every time you tweet, you're an ambassador for your brand, but that's marketing. Every time you put a Facebook post up, perhaps less so, but that's also marketing. Definitely every time you go on LinkedIn, that's marketing. Anything that's external going out to a potential customer or an existing customer is marketing, in my yeah. view anyway. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So let's talk a little bit about your favorite type of marketing, because we've spoken about that. Um, and that was the guerrilla marketing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for guerrilla, say cheap. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's gotten me well out, you know. Um, guerrilla marketing, I mean, it, it's, I'm just fascinated by the whole subject. And I'm one of these people that loves going down rabbit holes, which is maybe why I started Opto on, on Mighty Networks. The more, the more contributors I have, the more stuff I can read. Um, and I love Medium, and I love Farnham Street, and I love um, all the, I love TED Talks. Uh, I love listening to podcasts, although I'm more visual, funnily enough, but I still like podcasts. And, and I use podcasts rather like I used to use the radio. While I'm moving around doing stuff, I have a podcast player. Um, <clears throat> so guerrilla marketing is, is getting your message out in, and it, it started with a guy called Jay Conrad Levinson, who wrote a book many years ago called called surprise, non-surprisingly guerrilla marketing. But that, he was the kind of um, the person that coined the phrase, I suppose. But it's about any form of marketing which doesn't cost very much, is innovative and inspires action, but not by spending a fortune. And, and that, for me, is nirvana for a Scot who doesn't like spending money. And when, when you run a small business, you, you never really seem to have that much money. And every time you think you've got ahead, you know, the regulator or the government or HMRC or whoever will pitch up looking for um, looking for some kind of um, of payment so so if you can if you can run marketing on a budget that for me is Nirvana and there's loads and loads of ways you can do it and, and there's great examples some of it's small some of it's big and I like to I like to quote an example that, that was, I think was in the book but reddit now most people will have heard of reddit reddit uh, is sometimes called the front page of the web and it, it's it's an online forum full of stuff that you can get lost in and they started it's now i think 2 in 10 people in the world are on reddit or something i can't i can't remember the stat they've only ever spent 500 dollars on marketing and it, they had some stickers printed <laughs> honestly they did their own logo and they had some stickers printed. 
And what they did was they handed them out to people and said, please stick her responsibly because we're ready and we believe in the environment or something along those lines. But they, they, they definitely the line was, please stick her responsibly. It was there. Um, and people somehow, it grew from there. And now this massive thing. Now, I'm not saying that not, they're not online advertising, doing lots of other stuff now, but their physical cost was $500 to get going. And they are huge. And anyone's not had a look at Reddit, then you know, go and have a look. There's loads of interesting stuff. A lot of rubbish as well, but that's the internet for you. But loads and loads of good stuff to find. So guerrilla marketing for me is about those things. Now, how can you, how can you be unusual and innovative without spending money. Now, here's a big example. Jeeps, uh, which are you know big SUVs, whether you believe in them or not for the environment. But And Land Rovers, they're another one. You will often, if you pass a Land Rover dealership, Land Rover will be parked across the steps or on a rockery. That's guerrilla marketing. It's not parked on the forecourt, all shiny. It's parked as if it's going up a hill or it's climbing a flight of stairs. I think that's brilliant because it costs nothing. They just parked it on the steps leading up to the showroom. Uh, another one is Nike, which I really love. Now, I'm not suggesting people go out and do this, but Nike has this thing about fitness. That's their brand. It's about sportswear. In New York, they took away and loads of benches, and I think they got permission. They obviously paid New York City or, or whatever, but they, they left the back slats on park benches, but took away the seat slats and had a sticker on there that said, just do it. So rather than sit down, if you're going to be here, stand up, just do something. And I thought that was really clever. Um, it, the film that comes out, which is a clown with a red balloon, uh, all around cities when they were launching it, there were red balloons popped up. I mean, they cost virtually nothing. So there's lots and lots of ways, and it's about being creative. Um, and for me, that, that's the lovely thing about guerrilla marketing. Nothing's right and nothing's wrong. It's how you feel you can connect with your audience and you can resonate your brand to them. And can you share any examples of um, guerrilla marketing that you've used that have worked well? Uh, yes. Um, we... We, it's quite a while back, but um, we decided to do a seminar because the stock market was really racing. Now, you always think that's great. The stock market's going up and going to make lots of money. But we had a view that um, the stock market had got too hot. Um, it, it was due for a correction. So we invited some clients along to an event. Now, you could say, well, is that Guerrilla Martin? Because that's, that's an experiential, that's a, that's a meeting event. But actually, everyone got an ice cream while we were talking to them. And we were talking about how hot the stock market was and everybody sat there eating an ice cream. Mm -hmm. um, and we held these events anyway, so they were part of our regular process. But for years afterwards, people talked about... Um, uh, I always remember when you talked about the hot stock market and you gave us all a, a choice of a Magnum or a Mivi, and, and it just made us laugh. Uh, and it, was, it resonated for years. And every now and again, we'd get a, a, a potential, an inquiry would come to us and it would be a referral and say, oh, such and such said I should get in touch with you because you were the guys with the ice creams. And it, it was just a funny thing that, that lasted for ages. That, that's my favorite type of marketing, experiential marketing, which I think it, it definitely does tie into what you're saying about the, the guerrilla marketing. Because I think if you, I think for me, if you think of delivering an experience that's memorable, because the more memorable you are, the more return on your investment you're going to get, um, then the more people are going to keep coming back to you or talk about you, um, ho hopefully in a good way. You can be memorable in a bad way, so avoid that one. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, another, I mean, and sometimes guerrilla marketing happens within a larger thing. I mean, we mm. did our, I remember doing our 10th, 10th anniversary party, and we, we, we spent money, but we were always going to do it. It was our 10th party. We wanted to thank our clients for sticking with us for so many years, etc. And we, we, we had an event and we had a great night and stuff. But at the end of the night, we did a balloon pop. And it was just a bit of fun. And all these balloons came down from the ceiling. And a bit like Willy Wonka, inside one balloon was a gold um, ticket. And inside another one was a silver ticket. And, and it was just a bit of fun. And everyone had put a bit of money into the bucket for our chosen charity to be able to come in and do the balloon stomp. And they all came down from the ceiling. And the person that, that found the gold ticket got a gold sovereign. And the person that found the silver ticket got a silver crown. And it was just a bit of fun. But the, that bit of marketing inside the bigger event resonated for years. And people were talking about how annoyed, and quite wealthy people, some of them, were quite annoyed they hadn't won the gold sovereign. And it was not, not annoyed, annoyed, but was it, oh, I wanted to win that. And it was just great to see all these, these people stamping balloons at the end of the night, etc. And that, for me, was innovative, unusual it, it was talked about for many years later in fact people kept saying are we doing another one this year you know you think oh, i'm not made of money 
<laughs> oh, amazing. And I think a lot of people think, all right, it takes a lot of money to be innovative, but it really doesn't because a lot of innovative ideas are really simple and straightforward. And sometimes you can just think, well, that's common sense or that's common knowledge. Because I, I used to run an innovation fund when I worked at the NHS, or, or rather I was part of a team that ran the innovation fund. And some of the projects that we were funding, I was like, this isn't innovative. This is just, this. why aren't we doing this already? But mm. we weren't doing it already. So the fact that somebody had just said, right, okay, well, we need to, and got the process moving, then that was considered as innovative. And um, yeah. yeah, exactly what you're saying about the balloon pop. It's a simple concept, but it's so powerful and very, very memorable. Yeah, and here's a thing that, that, that could be done right now. You know, I've, I've seen it, and you don't have to be that original because your clients aren't everyone else's clients or customers, sorry. Um, why not send your customers a guide to using Zoom? Because everyone's on Zoom at the moment, everyone. It's just an idea. Maybe people already got it, but they'll think, well, that was, that was nice of them. I know how to use it, but that was kind of them to send it through by email. There's all sorts of stuff you can be doing. Um, and I think there's a danger at the moment. Everyone's sending out, um, having just underlined what I just said and, and almost go against it. There's so much useful stuff coming out. Send them something a bit flippant. You know, read the room. Don't be too flippant. But send them something about why it's important to get an hour's exercise a day. You know, a bit of lifestyle as well as business, I think goes down a long way. The other thing at the moment about is is don't be too out of character. If you're the sort of business that only speaks to your customers once a year, don't suddenly bombard them with 50 messages in a week. It's just they don't want to they don't want to hear it. Try and be a bit consistent, but be helpful. And and I think there's a great there's a great line that that a friend of mine who sadly died a couple of years ago gave um, gave me many years ago. He said, "If you didn't do what you did today, and you were your customer." What would you want to hear from you? And it's a great thinking, circular bit of thinking. If I didn't do what I do, and it took me a moment to work it out, and I thought, oh, I get it. If I didn't have my knowledge and my experience, but I was approaching someone of my knowledge and experience in your sector, what would I want to be told? And I think that's a great place to start with content marketing. What would be useful to me if I didn't know what I know? It's, yeah, such a powerful quote. And I will pull all of these great quotes and great pieces of advice out into the show notes. So for anybody listening, go, what did you say? Uh, yeah, if you go to the show notes on my website, they will all be there. And um, it's the best piece of advice with marketing is actually put yourself in the shoes of your customer and ask yourself, right, okay, if you were them, what would you think? What would you see? What would you do? What would you feel? And yeah, go this, from there. This- this, uh, um, another friend of mine, he, he was the chief executive of a, of a big financial firm. And, and he was talking to me um, about the fact that they had a customer avatar, you know, a, a, you know, a typical client. Um, and they used to come to the board meeting, which was a cardboard cutout of a typical client. Um, and I immediately burst his bubble, but then we are really good friends. And I said, so why didn't you just bring a real client? <laughs> They can actually ask, listen to you and ask the right questions as opposed to a car cutout that just looks like a generic stock photo person. And, and he laughed and said, well, I said, he doesn't have to be there for the whole of the board, but why not bring him in or have a, a, a customer advocate group? You know, have a, you know, not every business has this kind of, it's not that type of business. But what a great thing to be able to interact with customers in real time um, about what you hope to do for them and, and test them a bit. You know, have a user group. All sort, there are all sorts of ways you can do this. Oh, I love I love that method and the companies that I've worked for in the past that that was always a big driver for us I think one of my favorite things to do was we organized a two-day event at a platinum mine in South Africa and it was basically because you know everybody was going to these industry events everybody was talking about the same thing and it, it was it was a, it was an industry full of communities and it was one of those you know it's all about who you know never what you know and we were like right okay how can we get our products in front of the customers and demonstrate the true value and how they work. And we were like, oh, well, we have a great customer in South Africa that has lots of installations. Why don't we bring all of our potential customers and our existing customers together in a room and then go and show them rather than just tell them? And, you know, this it really didn't cost a huge amount of money at all. We were able to do it very, very cheaply. But the power of that event was absolutely brilliant. And I tell you what, I will never forget because we were looking at this platinum mine looking at the installation from the background. And I had all of these um, geotechnical engineers talking and looking at the mine and they were all from different mines. So we had somebody from a gold mine, somebody from a diamond mine, a copper mine, and they were all together. And 
they were all disagreeing over the style of um, of mining in this particular mine. And I was like, right, okay, so this is niching beyond niching. <laughs> you know, it's like if you really want to target gold miners, you have to be very specific to them. It, you can't just target mining. But um, yeah, that that was a really fun event. But you get when you can get customers talking to prospects, that's really where the magic happens. Yeah, um, I, I think you've just trumped me on my my gold sovereign and silver crown. You actually brought the mines, so you know, well yeah. done. <laughs> uh, that doesn't sound like a cheap event to me, but uh, no, I, I I think you're right. You need to understand your niche. You need to understand, you, you know, where your customers sit, and and you know, depending on your product or service, you'll either have a broad niche or an, or a set of narrow niches. And mm-hmm. and I think it's on it's right that you understand them. And you, and I think before anyone goes off and does this marketing thing they should really understand what their customer base looks like. What are they looking for? Why are they, why are they already clients who might want to become a client? You know, do you have different age groups, different demographics, different genders, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, very, very important. Yeah, different uh, genders is really important to look at as well because um, I had a few people that their, their messages were really good, but they definitely resonated more with a male audience. But then it was very much rejected by a female audience because they hadn't quite understood that and I came in and I was like well why did you think that that message would go down well with a female audience and I think it I mean I've always worked in male dominated industries you know my dad had a car garage so I grew up you know in that environment so I was always very used to the fact that people never really considered how women thought in industries like that but it is really important to consider both sides of the uh, thing and how people interpret things and it's incredibly important and and I know this in financial services I've spent so many years talking to private clients, personal clients, you know, men and women and couples, that very often the man does all the talking, but at the end of the day, you need the commitment from the woman because she's absolutely in charge of the, of the household finances. The man might be talking like he does, but, uh, you know, used to find. So I'm not a huge believer in that only women can give financial advice to women, for instance, because I never had that issue. There is, there is a bit of a thought process in that within financial services, but I think you've got to, you've got to understand that, that there are differences um, and that they act differently. Um, this is a terrible generalization, but I think women tend to think quite more quietly and deeply about money than the way men do. Men, men are quite, let's get it done, let's get invested, whereas women want to think about it. I know it's a generalization, but so your messaging must be different, particularly if you're talking to two at the same time. They will have different risk tolerances, they will have different objectives. You know, the women want to make sure the children are cared for and can go to university. And I'm not saying the men don't, but the men are often thinking ahead about, you know, what, what's the next car they can get and all that kind of stuff. Terrible generalizations, I know, but, but only used to, to demonstrate that you have to understand who your customer is. Absolutely. And I think, especially what you were saying before about not um, just you know, getting women to talk to women about that because that is definitely not the answer. And I think we will end up going down a very deep rabbit hole if we start talking mm. about my views on uh, women's only and exclusive groups, which I really don't agree with. Um, but it's it's the importance of having a diverse group of people to brainstorm these ideas and to actually look at who your customers are. Because if you have just one person looking at who your target market is, that's one perspective. Whereas if you brainstorm it with other people and actually have a look, right, okay, what are those perspectives? What are those behaviours? And how, do, how can you bring it all together? That's where you have that deeper understanding. Yeah, and, and even, even demographics that look similar can be very different. I mean, I know that... You know, some of my clients would be kind of over 50 male when I was in financial services, that kind of stuff. If you've got a doctor or an engineer as a client, they wanted to know every single facet before they made a decision. When you did your review meetings, they wanted to know every single pound, every single penny, how the markets moved, how the individual investments moved within the larger portfolio. Um, if you got someone from the media end, again, a generalization, it was about, has it gone up? Good. That's okay then. No, we need to talk a bit deeper than that. No, no, it's fine. I trust you. We'll be okay. And and that's the same demographic, you know, sort of male over 50, 10 years to retirement, that kind of stuff. So you, it, it is important to understand the differences. Definitely. So this has been an absolutely great interview and there's loads of things that we can take away from it. And I'm sure that there's loads more that we can talk, especially about marketing and and bringing that together. Are there any sort of parting words of wisdom that you want to leave or or anything that you you want to share with our audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say give it a go. Not everything will work. 
um, forget about the word marketing, forget about the phrase content marketing. It is just telling your brand story to your client, your customers and your potential customers. And I think try not to worry about it too much. You know, if you want to have a look on YouTube and see what people are up to, but just have that thing about what would I want to know if I didn't know? What would help that particular person at that particular time? And I think you you can't go that far wrong with it. You don't have to spend a fortune. Yes, there are lots of good marketing people out there that you can engage and will really help you refine that if you're not, if you're less confident. But everything you do that's got an external broadcast, be it Twitter, Facebook, a letter, an email, your website, any brochures you produce, it's all marketing of one script or another. Um, the final line, because I, I really do need to shut up because I could talk about marketing for hours is small firms can look like larger firms if they get their brand part of their marketing right have a consistency of font of color of imagery and that way you just look smarter um you know i i if you think about the letters you get from your bank they all look exactly the same um if you look at any of the suppliers websites you might be on like let's just say virgin they all look the same and it somehow gives a confidence whereas lots of small businesses because we do it on the fly as we go and because we have less budget but there are easy quick wins you can do same font same colors have a style guide don't use the same stock imagery that you see everywhere else there are hundreds of different you know free stock sites that, that do really well like unsplash and you can use those and they're really good imagery not just the usual two people sitting in two deck chairs uh, listen, I wish I wish all your viewers well, um, and thank you for the opportunity to, for the interview. Brilliant! No, thank you for coming along. And just to recap what you said as well, um, in that you you know you don't have to spend a fortune. So sometimes just think of other ways of doing it. You know, in the same way that Lee decided to license somebody else's technology rather than develop his own. Um, you know, you can still leverage technology, and you can still bring that technology to your clients. You don't necessarily have to go down that development route if that's not right for you. You know, it might be right for you. It might not be. <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you. Bye. Bye. When marketing isn't your primary focus or area of expertise, it can quickly become very overwhelming, frustrating, and end up at the top of your I'm avoiding this list. If you'd like to make your life easier and get results from your marketing, then I invite you to come and join us in the Curious Marketing Club, a virtual community full of support, guidance, and know-how. For details about the club and for the show notes, please visit my website, charliewyman.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn from other people who are being curious and doing amazing things, then please subscribe and keep listening. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.